Holy Spirit, we ask that you would please come and speak to us through the words of Scripture and set us free. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just before I preach, a brief announcement to the men in this room. Men's Fraternity resumes on Tuesday, 6.30 in the morning for the last two men's fraternities. You want to be there for those. When uh, I was a graduate student at Stanford, uh, the English department there hired a consultant to tell us how we could become the number one English department in the country, since that was the goal, after all. And as part of his research, this consultant asked all the faculty what they thought would be the number one thing required to become the number one English department. And one of the professor's answers was interesting. She said it would be to give her a bigger office. No lie. Right? Like the, that nobody would consider Stanford a number one English department until she had a bigger office. And I kind of thought her desire for a fancy office was really interesting, given that she was also an outspoken Marxist. But as I've said in the past, she wasn't so much a Marxist, she was a Neiman Marxist. <laughs> now, she claimed to be an atheist, but that wasn't quite true. She had a God. It just wasn't Jesus. It was academic success and recognition. And we all bowed down to that God every day that I was there. In fact, I remember one of my colleagues once saying to a group of us, she said, I'll always remember when the chair of the department told me that I was their number one graduate student. And the arrogance of her comment really irritated me because I wanted to be the number one graduate student. <laughs> the Bible word for that is idolatry. And that's the issue that's going on in the entire book of Hosea that we read a little bit from today. That Hosea has to deal with Israel's idolatry, but he does it in a really interesting way. God tells him to go marry a prostitute named Gomer. The translation we use today said a promiscuous woman. That's because we use the polite translation. Other translations use harsher words. Now, the reason God called Hosea to do this very odd thing was because God didn't want to just write an essay on idolatry. He wanted to make a dramatic statement about his relationship with Israel. That just as Hosea's wife went and slept with man after man after man, so Israel kept worshiping other gods, which God compares to spiritual prostitution. He puts it this way. He says, quote, A spirit of whoredom has led my people astray, and they have played the whore, forsaking their God. As we keep discovering in this series on the prophets, the Bible just should not be read in church. Some of you have probably stopped bringing your kids at this point, right? Like, ah, that pastor. But as harsh as this story sounds, it's actually one of the most beautiful in the whole Bible. Because in it, we see God's passionate love for his people. Because just as Hosea goes back to reclaim his wife over and over and over again, in the same way, God never gives up on Israel or on us even when they and we run after false gods and do horrible things in the process. As I've told you, one of the things the Israelites did was they would throw their children alive into fires and burn them to death as sacrifices to these false gods. The other thing they did in order to worship a fertility god named Baal is that the men of Israel would go to the temple of Baal and have sex with temple prostitutes and call it worship, right? which I'm sure did wonders for church attendance, right? Very strange. And the idea was that that would make Baal amorous, and then he would have sex with the earth god, and that would make the crops grow. They called it Baal. We would call it prosperity. 
You see, idolatry can sound really strange and foreign to us, you know. It seems very distant. I'm doubting that any of you bowed down to a statue of Baal this week, just going out on a limb there. But it is still alive and well in American culture. We have a lot of false gods. Let me give you some examples. Tomorrow morning, many people will go to a shiny office building, sit behind a desk, and at that place they will find their ultimate sense of purpose, identity, and worth, and there they will sacrifice the best of their time, their effort, even their families. For some people, that office building is their temple, and it's where they worship the false god called success. There's another building near here where they have a big vault to keep money safe in. And some people will find their ultimate sense of security by how much they have in that vault. There's a place I go to a couple of times a week where the walls all have mirrors. And there's exercise equipment everywhere. And the priests and priestesses in that temple all wear spandex. <laughs> Except for me, because it's not a good look for me, right? And because it's still not that long since New Year's Day, that, that, that temple has like five times more people than it will in two months. And some people there are going to be driven to distraction. That's their temple. And they will be driven to distraction worshiping the God called physical appearance. Some people worship the God called approval of others. This is my favorite false God to worship. Relationships can be idols if they get unhealthy or if we sort of they become excessively clingy. And because I'm from eastern Washington, I happen to like both kinds of music, country and western. And there's one song title that I just think sums up relational dysfunction beautifully. It says, if you can't live without me, then why aren't you dead yet? <laughs> right? That is a dysfunctional relationship. Pleasure and comfort, big idols in American culture. Sex, big idol in American culture. Even church can be an idol. If we look to it rather than to God for our sense of security and joy, or if we get overly attached to certain ways of doing worship and of doing church rather than to God. One of my professors in seminary was the head of the committee that did the revised standard translation of the Bible, which was back in the 50s, which was the first major trans English translation of the Bible since the King James was done in 1612. And when they got done, he got tons of angry letters from people who thought it was sacrilegious to read the Bible in any other version than King James. And he would read these letters to us out loud. And one of them had this classic sentence in it. It said, if the King James Version of the Bible was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. <laughs> Some historical problems there, right? But the P.S. was even better. It said, P.S., I have burned a copy of your RSV Bible and I have sent you the ashes. This is what I hope God does to you when you go to hell. And then the man signed it in the love of Christ. His idol was the King James Version of the Bible. You see, just about anything can be an idol, even good things. All of those things are good things in one way or the other, in the right context. But if we look to those things, even good things, rather than to God, for security, joy, meaning, and purpose, it's an idol. It's an idol if we put it at the center of our lives and give it more of our time and our attention and our energy than we give to God. You see, idolatry is not just worshiping bad things. More importantly, idolatry is when we make good things ultimate things. And we all do it. 
Every one of us, including me. In fact, if nothing on that list is kind of your idol, I do not want you to feel left out. So let me just add a blank down there at the bottom. You fill in your idol du jour. <laughs> Education, control, your house. I mean, you name it. Now, as you look at that list, I want to ask you some questions. And as I go through these questions, you just put some mental check marks where it applies. Which one of those false gods occupies your mind and your daydreams the most? Put a check there. Which one do you most fear losing? Which of these do you most look to to make you feel secure or happy or important? Which one do you put most of your time, your energy, and your money toward? Whichever one has the most check marks, that's the idol in your heart that is competing with God for your devotion. And it's so important to identify it, not to feel guilty. Not to feel all guilty. It's so important to identify for our sakes. Here's why. Because our idols cost us an awful lot. For starters, our idols rob us of joy and of peace. The false god that I sometimes worship called people-pleasing, all that god leaves me is a lot of stress and fear of failure and anxiety about what others think of me. The false god called success can turn us into exhausted workaholics. Our idols bring us nothing but bondage. Back in the Bible, people used to have to pack up their little statues, their idols. They'd have to pack them on their backs and carry them from place to place, which is a great metaphor for what idolatry does to us. It, it burdens us. And a good question to ask is, does your God carry you, or do you have to carry your God? The second thing our idols cost us is experiencing God's love, adventure, and joy. Now, God loves us no matter what, even when we chase idols. But if we are so busy with our idols, we often are too busy to experience his love or his adventure or his joy. For instance, if I worship the God called comfort, I am going to miss the adventure of being part of God's rescue mission to this world because I'm going to be afraid of it. I know a lot of people whose idol is money. That's what makes them feel secure. And as a result, they give very little of it away to God's purposes. And the result of that is they never know the security that comes from seeing God provide over and over again and learning to trust him. And that's real security because you know what? God is way more reliable than the U.S. economy. Going to argue with me on that? Not so much, right? A year and a half ago, the God of money died. And unlike Jesus, he was not raised three days later. As the old saying goes, money talks, I'll not deny. I heard it once, it said goodbye. <laughs> the bottom line is our idols cost us an awful lot. As one of my favorite verses in the Bible puts it, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that might otherwise be theirs. Which is why it just breaks God's heart when we chase after those false gods. One of the things that is so beautiful about the book of Hosea is throughout it you can just hear God's heart breaking like a jilted lover. And at points he explodes in anger, but then he always comes around and he says things like, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I hand you over? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. And you see, that's the difference between the real God and those false gods we worship. Those false gods, they never get upset when we hurt ourselves. They never get upset, have a broken heart when we reject them. They don't get upset because they don't care about us. The people-pleasing God I sometimes worship does not get upset if I give myself an ulcer trying to earn the approval of others. When we serve those false gods, we exchange the God who cares for the God who doesn't. 
When I was working on my dissertation, I worked night and day, just constantly. And this also happened to coincide with my first year of marriage, which was not a good combination. So one night when I came home late after working way too long, I opened the door and there was Christina standing in the kitchen. And when she saw me, she threw a spoon at me. Now, don't worry, no husbands were harmed in this sermon illustration, right? And, and she, didn't, she didn't throw it at me, she just threw it near me and she deliberately missed, so I tell myself, you know, just to get my attention, right? And that's what I love about my wife. You know, she doesn't play those weird communication games, you know, someone, you sense someone's upset and you say, you know, is anything wrong? And they go, no, I'm just fine, just fine. You know, but you know, right? No, she doesn't do that. She just throws a spoon at you, right? And then she stomped her foot and she said, that dissertation doesn't love you. I do. So why are you spending so much time with it? That's a good question. So I started to spend more time with my wife and loved it. And that's basically what God says to us. Those other gods, they don't love you. They didn't die for you like I did. So why are you worshiping them? Which brings us to the good news. Because the good news is, with the power of Jesus, we can break free from those idols. We can break free from the idols and all the bondage they give us. How do we do that? A couple of things. The first way to break free from our idols is to reject the cultural lies that we are believing. A lot of our idols are given to us by our culture. Whether it's our notion of what success is, or how we should look physically, or what brings true security. And so, to get free of our idols, we've got to start by rejecting the cultural lies that we are believing. And that's part of what this community is meant to do. Get some people around you who can help you do that. Who can say, that is a cultural lie. Here is God's truth about you and about how much he loves you. The second thing to break free from our idols is to ask for tangible experiences of Jesus' love and ask over and over and over again. Pray this prayer, Lord, dethrone my idol of money, approval, whatever it is, and replace it with experiences of your love. And over the years, as I have kind of learned to experience Jesus more and more by praying, you know, Lord, dethrone my idol, idols, replace it with experiences of your love, the more I experience him, it doesn't happen all the time, but the more I experience his presence, usually comes in thoughts that I know are not my thoughts, and you realize that God has just communicated with you, it makes all of those false gods seem a lot smaller. Third way, out of the bondage of idolatry, is to engage in some spiritual training exercises. And by that, here's what I mean. I don't mean trying harder not to be idolatrous. I don't mean trying harder. What I mean are spiritual training exercises that can retrain our hearts to be focused on Jesus. Just like an athlete trains for his or her sport, until it becomes second nature, we can retrain our hearts. So for instance, if your false god is money, the real god has given us a training exercise called sacrificial giving. Give at least 10% of our income to his purposes, and we will discover that God always provides, or that we can be happy with less than we thought we could. And then God becomes more real, and we lean on money less. If people-pleasing is your false god, try doing something good and don't tell anybody about it. Keep it a secret. Training exercises. One of the smartest men I've ever met is a philosophy professor at USC named Dallas Willard. He's absolutely brilliant. In fact, I'd, I'd never want to get into an argument with him because I'm sure he'd prove I didn't exist. 
And I heard a man describe a time he was in Dallas's class once, and some freshman was trying to point out where this freshman thought that Dallas was wrong and was doing it in a real obnoxious way. And everyone knew that this freshman was just way off base. But instead of arguing, Dallas just said, well, you know what? That's probably a good place to leave our discussion today. So let's just end class here. Was the students left, this man went up to Dallas and said, man, that student was so wrong. Why, why didn't you just reduce him to intellectual jello? You know, I was just waiting for that. And Dallas said, I was practicing the discipline of not having to have the last word. In an academic environment where intellectual superiority is the false god that everybody worships, Dallas engaged in a spiritual training exercise to retrain his heart not to worship that false god. Reject the cultural lie. Replace the idol with real experiences of Jesus. Engage in spiritual training exercises. And then finally, if none of those work, if none of those work, or if you refuse to do any of those, here is a surefire way to get rid of your idols. God will tear your idol down because he loves you. Because he loves you. And your job is to let him. If one of your idols is slipping away, money, reputation, whatever it is, pray this prayer. Lord, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to teach me? And you keep praying that prayer until your hands let go of that idol. Someone sent me a story about a pastor who preached his farewell sermon on his last Sunday before leaving, the, leaving for a new church. And after the service, a woman said to him, Well, pastor, I'm, I'm really sorry to see you go. We're never going to have another pastor as good as you. And that kind of puffed the pastor's pride up a bit, but he wanted to at least sound humble. So he said, Oh, I'm sure your next pastor will be wonderful. And the woman said, No, you don't understand. We've had five pastors in this church, and each one has been worse than the one before. <laughs> Took you a while to get that, but yeah. He's, he's the word. Anyway, there's a man who just had his idol torn down, right? Pride, accomplishment, a good prayer for him to pray in that moment. Lord, what are you trying to teach me? Show me until you let go of that idol. Because you see, if we cling to worthless idols, we will forfeit the grace that might otherwise be ours. But when we let go of our idols, we receive the fullness of God's blessings because our hands are open to receive them instead of hanging on. My first year as a college pastor, there was a guy who worked for me whose idol by his own admission was the need for recognition, especially upfront speaking, and his career goal to be a pastor. Those were his idols. So when the previous college pastor left, he wanted the job. And he was a great guy. He could organize like nobody's business, but his speaking skills weren't all that great. So the church didn't feel that he was, the right, he was right for the job. So instead, they asked me to take the job which irritated both him and me since not only had I not applied for the job, I didn't want the silly thing. But I took it, and he stayed, and we worked together for a year, and we had a great relationship. Well, before I'd even started, he had already planned this major conference to be held on the Stanford campus. He'd invited a lot of big-name speakers. I mean, it was just a big deal. The first night, there were a 1,000 people at this conference. A lot of faculty were there. A lot of the deans of the college were there. It was a big deal. And he'd done it all. It was his idea. I had nothing to do with it. But the day of the event, he said to me, I want you to give the opening remarks tonight, not me. And I said, no way. This is your baby. You did all the work. You deserve the credit. And he said, no. You're the college pastor. I'm not. And it's important for our ministry that you develop credibility on this campus. So they need to see you up front, not me. I want you to do it. 
which I did. I did it, but I told everyone that he'd done all the work. But the result was I ended up with most of the credit when it was his deal all along. I repeatedly thanked him for that gesture that he made. Well, about a year later, we were having coffee, and I went back to that moment. I said, that was a really, yeah, a lot of integrity to do that. Thank you again. And he said, you know, stop thanking me. To be honest, I did it more for me than for you. Because as I was thinking about it, I realized that what I really want in life is to be part of something that is changing lives and leaving a legacy. And in order for that to happen on this campus, I realized that the college pastor, which is you, needed to be empowered. And because that happened, that's helped our ministry reach students and faculty that we never would have been able to reach otherwise. And if I had spent my time that night trying to get the credit, all of that might not have happened. So I'm happy because I've realized I got what I really wanted deep down, which was to be a part of something that was leaving a legacy. And then he said, besides, I'm beginning to realize I'm not really a very good upfront speaker. And then he looked at me and he said, am I? <laughs> well, no, yeah, kind of, yeah, not so much. But you are an amazing organizer and you are an incredibly visionary man. That's what I told him. Well, a few months later, he decided that ministry actually wasn't cut out for him after all. And instead, he went to work in Washington, D.C., helping senators create legislation to help persecuted Christians around the world. And he loves doing it. He's really good at it. And he loves it way more than he would have loved doing ministry. His idol was need for recognition and a career in ministry. But he rejected the cultural lies that said, if you're not up front, you're a nobody. He got closer to Jesus, and he engaged in a spiritual training exercise of not getting the credit. And the result was he got what he really wanted deep down, which was to be part of changing lives. He, and he found his true calling, a calling that gives him way more joy than ministry would have given him because he let go of his idol. So what idols are you hanging on to? And what grace are you forfeiting as a result because you're hanging on so tight that God can't give you anything because your hands aren't open? Will you reject the lies that you're, you're hearing? Ask Jesus to replace those idols with tangible experiences of his presence and engage in some spiritual training exercises that will open up your hands to receive all the blessings that God wants to give to you. His blessings of joy and power and adventure and peace. You see, the whole of human history is about a God in passionate pursuit of a creation that is constantly rejecting him. And Jesus is the ultimate demonstration of just how far our God is willing to go to get us back, willing to come himself in the person of Jesus and die for us to make us free. And this is where Jesus is different than all of those other false gods that we worship. You see, throughout history, idols have taken many forms. There have been idols with swords, idols with spears, idols with tridents, hammers, and helmets. There have been idols on pedestals, idols on horseback, idols on mountains, idols on shrines, but there has never been an idol on a cross. Because only Jesus loves us that much. So in the words of Hosea, let us return. Let us return to know the Lord. For though we are torn, he will bind us up. Though we are wounded, he will heal us. And like the spring rain watering the earth, he will come to us like the rain. Or in the words of the old hymn, softly and tenderly Jesus is calling, calling, O oh sinner, come home. And when we do, he will make us free. So Jesus, would you please reach into our hearts and pull the idols out of them. 
Lord, we bring you our idols. We lay them at your feet. We confess them as idols, and we ask that you would remove them from our hearts' embrace, and that you would replace them with your love, your mercy, your presence, and your power and your joy. We cannot do it alone, but with your power we can. So replace our idols with yourself, and we'll be grateful. In your name, amen.